What a wonderful, glorious Resurrection Sunday. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're still in the book of John. I know we're in chapter 6. We'll go back to it next week. I just had to skip to the resurrection this morning. John chapter 20, we're going to begin in verse 1. And uh, I just want to say just a few words of thanks. Yesterday was wonderful. If you were praying at 6 a.m. when you heard the peals of thunder and the lightning and wondering, will we have a community helicopter drop of Easter eggs? I was really worried, but it stopped. We had probably about 600 people out on our field, and we rained down eggs on everyone who was there that day. It was great. I want to thank Dina Scott. She did a tremendous job. Our ministerial team all came together. We had an awesome, awesome day to reach out to our community, let them know that we love them, and invite them to worship Jesus with us today. It was just a great day. And when I was thinking about that, I, I just want you to know it was no small feat. We had yesterday over 10,000 eggs filled with prizes that rained down 100 feet from a helicopter, and kids all went home with baskets filled to the brim with eggs that had a candy inside of it. It was great, and you all worked so hard to produce that. And I'm so thankful that you did, but can I just have you just stop and just, just, just think with me for a minute? What if we wouldn't have gone through all that effort and we just sent people home with plastic eggs that were empty on the inside. How do you think that would have gone over? Well, if you're thinking probably not too well, that happened to a friend of mine who told me about it recently. Showed up for a community Easter egg hunt. The entire town was invited out. There were eggs galore everywhere. And they had all kinds of kids there. And of all the hundreds of plastic eggs, every one of them was intentionally left empty because they wanted to only have one prize to give out that day. And from the story, my friend, the kids were scarred. I mean, they all were there, and when they opened their eggs, they were not tears of joy. And as he told me the story, he says, Jeff, I, I still don't know if my kids will, I might be talking about Ryan Showalter, will ever get over it. He said, they still come to me every time we have an egg hunt, and they ask me the question, Daddy, are there going to be candy in the eggs this time? And I, I, I hope to never let down Ryan's kids. But can I tell you when I even think of that? Most of the time in life, when we think about things that are empty, it's not a good thing. I mean, have you ever gone to the kitchen wanting a big old glass of milk only to find the carton empty? Or just think about what might happen if you wake up and you carry on your day and you take out the minivan all day, but you choose to just go home and then your wife has to get in the car the next day only to find what she thought would be a full tank of gas, and it's not. That's never a good situation. I try to avoid it as often as I can. You see, there are times when we think about emptiness, it's, it's just not a good thing. I mean, think about even when you go to Krispy Kreme Donuts. Have you enjoyed your dozen donuts that cost the same as a gallon of gas that they're advertising? That means you went and you paid $45 for your Krispy Kreme dozen donuts this week. But if you go and you happen to get my favorite, which are the chocolate ones, not with a hole, but the ones that are full, don't you want that chocolate-covered 
just pound of goodness just to be filled to the brim with that delicious cream on the inside, and wouldn't it be disappointed if it wasn't? Most of the time, emptiness is not a good thing. And it conjures up all kinds of feelings that you don't want to have. An empty fridge when you're hungry. An empty bank account before you're near the end of the month. An empty nest in your house after your kids move out. An empty church on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning. You don't want to have anything to do with emptiness in any of those situations. When you come to John chapter 20, God has a way through the power of the gospel to flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Because there is nothing more glorious, nothing more right than to know that three days after Jesus died on the cross, there was an empty tomb. And today we're going to talk about the significance of that empty tomb. We've already read the text in 1 Corinthians 15, the glorious passage that tells us that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, our faith and our preaching is futile. We of most men would, want, would, would be pitied if any of these things were true. So today I want us to talk about the goodness and the necessity of Jesus' empty tomb. And you get a real sense of its importance as you read John chapter 20. Now as we come to John chapter 20 and we realize that this is the very first Easter Sunday morning, don't miss what has just occurred in the previous chapter. That when Jesus dies and is put in a tomb, that on the Saturday that followed, it had to be one of the darkest days that humanity, it was the darkest day that humanity had ever seen. I don't think it's possible for us to fully identify with the grief and the sadness and the mourning of the inner circle that had been around Jesus and had to physically look upon his lifeless body. None of these followers of Jesus ever even thought that his life would lead to his death on a cross. And along with these feelings of soul-crushing grief, these who knew Jesus best had to listen to the haunting accusations of the inner voices that were replaying their shameful moments of denial and desertion. And all of that was Saturday. But it's Sunday now. And on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
and then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead and then the disciples went back to their home. There is so much there. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and who I believe is undeniably John, the most beloved disciple, the unnamed disciple that is found in this passage. I love this text because you're gripped by the fact that as they each go to the empty tomb, they each respond to the empty tomb in their own way. But when you study this passage in its original language of Koine Greek, that is when you mine from this text even more truth. Our ESV, our modern versions of the Bible, whichever one you read, I've read most of them this week in preparation, and you read of them, and you naturally assume in just about all of them that the four times that the word that is translated saw that you find in all in these verses, the four times that you find them, you just assume naturally that all of these times it translates the same Greek word. But remarkably, that isn't true at all. The four times that we find the word saw, it is translating three different Greek words. And when you understand what these three words mean, and how John uses them to explain each of the responses of these in our text to an empty tomb, it helps the gospel become accessible to us. So I want you to understand where we're going this morning. As we understand these verses, these glorious truths of the resurrection, and this is how I want you to think about all these verses together. Your response to the empty tomb indicates whether or not you have eternal life. When you come to this text, you encounter three people that I think we're feeling on the inside as empty as those awful empty Easter eggs truly were. So let's look at these three that are mentioned here. First, I want to invite you to experience the empty tomb as did Mary Magdalene because when Mary saw the empty tomb, she questioned. If you ever were to need a model of a person of great devotion and boldness, if you encountered this woman Mary from the place of Magdala, it would bring an end to your search. But it wasn't always that way for her. Maybe you can relate. The times in your life that you just assume we would never have to think about, again, similar to what Emily so openly and wonderfully shared for us today. That was true for Mary. When you encounter her in the book of Luke, the first time you encounter her, she is a woman who the Bible says is filled with seven evil spirits. And these spirits has kept her shackled. She has listened to their voices of accusation only confirming the things about herself that she didn't want to be true, but these voices declared them to be, so I believe that she believed them too. 
when she encountered Jesus, she encountered the one who had power over these spirits, and, they, she, and Jesus is the one who freed her from their control. And from that time forward in her life, she was fully and undeniably completely committed and loyal to Christ. Most likely, this is the same woman who is the unnamed sinful woman that you encounter in Luke chapter 7, who took an alabaster jar filled with expensive ointment, costly ointment, and she saw Jesus, who she loved with all of her heart, and she wiped Jesus' feet with that expensive alabaster ointment and mixed that ointment with the sincere tears that she shed over her past. But they were tears from her past. Jesus later says of her, the reason that she loves him so much is because she has been forgiven of so much and she knew what it was to experience that forgiveness from Jesus. So later... It's not a surprise to find her again. She is risking everything to boldly find her place at the foot of the cross, standing in support of Jesus. And then we find her here in our text, journeying early in the morning to honor Jesus. And she's not alone. Other gospel Writers record that she is with the company of other women, Mary, Jesus' own mother, a woman by the name of Salome. But there's a reason, I believe, that John only mentions Mary, because John has a way of bringing the story of an individual into our focus so that we can connect and relate to them. And if there's anyone in the Bible to relate to, it's her. She's so brave. John mentions that she comes to Jesus in the dark. Despite the threat of the potentially brutal Roman guards that were guarding the grave of Jesus. Though there had just been that morning an earthquake of significant proportion. Though it happened to be the event of the weekend of the Passover feast. And Jerusalem had all throughout his Streets, people were sleeping, having traveled there, all of these unknown strangers to celebrate this feast. And even with all of this around her, Mary's love drew her into the darkness that morning so she could prepare Jesus' body for a proper burial. And when she arrived at the tomb, what she saw was a stone but it wasn't set over the entrance of the tomb as she expected to find it. It had been taken away. And the darkness of her understanding, it matched the gloomy darkness of the hour's condition. And she ran to Peter and ran to John, the other disciple, and told them that the authorities responsible for the death of Christ had taken Jesus' body and they did not know where they laid him. When you come to Mary in John chapter 20, though she loved Jesus so much, there is no mention and no thought in her mind of resurrection for her. 
The Greek word translated here, in verse 2, that she saw the empty tomb. That Greek word here is the word blepo. It's a word that simply means to make notice of. To take a rather quick look. It's the way that I think about what would happen if you had that awful call in the middle of the night and you had to go and examine the lifeless body of a loved one. You would only have to look at the person for long enough to make the identification. A quick glance is all you would muster, all you would want to do. And that's exactly what happened for her in the midst of her darkness. But her look, it betrayed her. It led her to reach the wrong conclusion. Do you see what she went and told Peter and John? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid Him. But then the story continues. With great urgency, the two who received Mary's report, Peter and John, when Mary finds them and they hear from her, they take off running to the tomb themselves. And Jesus, John gets there first. Not because John loves Peter, or John loves Jesus more than Peter loves Jesus. That's not it. What's most likely the case is that John is the younger of the two. He's got fresher legs. So he gets there first. And then he stoops. The word blepo is used there, but it's the only time it's used of John. There's a different word coming later. He looks, he stoops, and he waits. Something has signaled to John that he needs to wait for Peter to arrive. And then Peter enters. He doesn't listen to the same signals as John, or most people for that matter. He enters right into the tomb. And when he enters, he sees the clothes lying there. He sees the face cloth that covered Jesus. It was there too. And he sees these burial clothes of Jesus, and they are, uh, they are folded and they are undisturbed. They're not like the burial clothes of Lazarus that are on him when he is awakened and brought out of the tomb. These clothes are folded. They're in the position almost as if the one who is inside of them has passed through them and left them as they were before. And this is what Peter sees. So I want you to consider the tomb as Peter experienced it too. Because when Peter saw the empty tomb, he investigated. The word translated saw for him in verse 6 is different than the word before. This is the Greek word theoreo. If it sounds familiar to you, it's the word from which we get our English word theater. It means to observe something for a sustained amount of time and to give it attention. And this is different from blepo. Blepo earlier for Mary, it describes a glance, but theoreo describes a gaze. But even this long exploratory gaze left Peter with a failure. Mary at least draws a conclusion, though it was the wrong one. Peter doesn't draw any. Then we return to that unnamed disciple, John, the beloved one who knew Jesus so intimately. Maybe he conceded to Peter. That's why he waited for him. 
let him go in first, respecting his age. What I do for Jeff Hodges, I respect his age. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe I'm more like John. Maybe he's, Maybe he's just scared in the moment. He lets Peter go in first. But after seeing his friend enter, John now enters the room. And when he goes in, his heart is overtaken by life-giving certainty. What happens for him is something that is way more than just hope. Because when John saw the empty tomb, the Bible said he believes. And the Greek word that is used for what John saw is the word idon. It's the aorist tense of the Greek word orao. It's a word that's hard to translate into English because it is filled with such glorious truth. To really understand the meaning of the word orao, you need to understand some of the synonyms that you find of it in the New Testament. Words in the Greek like gnosko, the word that is used in Matthew chapter 16, verse 3, when Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of the day, and he tells them something significant. They knew how to look, says Jesus, at the redness of the sky and gnosko, and know that the storm is coming when they saw the sky, that it was red. But then Jesus says you can't even interpret the signs of the time. This is a synonymous meaning to what the word orao truly means. It means to see, yes, but it's more than just to see. It's to see and to know. It's to know as you look at the sky what's coming. It's to see and to know. It's to see and to realize. To see and to understand. To see and perceive that Jesus is alive. So when he looks into the tomb, he sees and he believed. And this line, I believe, in this text is the climax of the Gospel of John. The more complete understanding of resurrection is going to come later for John. That's why he writes in verse 9 that he sees, he believes, but they have yet to understand from the Scripture all that it means that Jesus must rise from the dead. And when I read verse 9, it should be an encouragement to all of us. He believes, and we can too. And just like John, we can learn and we can grow to understand the fullness of what it means to live out the resurrection in our lives. And how to think about it. How central it is. And all of this makes John's life-giving thesis for the entire book of John makes sense. He's written all of these things so that we would believe as he believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you would have life in his name, the only place where life can truly be found. So what a gift we are given. In this detailed account of the empty tomb, the different responses of these wonderful people that we can relate to, Mary Magdalene and Peter and John. As you think about this text, 
Maybe what is already happening in your heart is what I've been praying for. The Holy Spirit would speak to you right now and show you which of these three you relate to the most. Within this collection is the response of the empty tomb of every person who's here this morning. You identify most with Mary Magdalene? You've come into this service? You know what it is to feel the prison of the accusatory voices in your mind, much like she wrestled with before she met Jesus? And you know that, did you hear those voices? Speaking of shame and guilt, the accusations that they're speaking are things that you have to accept because you know that you have committed the things that they're speaking of. But here's the amazing truth about Christ and his relationship with Mary and the amazing thing that's true of him and his relationship with you. Because even before Mary comprehends the significance of the empty tomb, which she later will come to understand, the Jesus who died and rose from the dead, listen to me, he loved her first, even when she was a great sinner, a woman of the city. He loved her first, just as he loves us for first, and he died and rose again for us. So here this previously unloved woman has encountered a love from Jesus to which nothing in life can compare. Really, when I think about Mary Magdalene at this point in her life, the thing that's probably gripping her more than anything else is that Jesus coming back from the dead is something she cannot even fathom. It just seems like it'd be too good to be true. The creator of everything would forgive us. Would come to this world to identify with us and to die and to be lifeless on a cross, to be raised from the dead, showing us how we could be right with God, dying what the punishment that we deserve for Him, too good to be true. She couldn't even fathom it. Bleppo. And she saw the empty tomb. It's all she could think. Maybe you're like Peter. I like Peter. I relate to Peter. Peter is the one who made the mold for the guy who is impetuous. Peter is the one who all through the Bible says amazing things, and as quickly as he has a wonderful truth revealed to him, you are the Christ. Peter, no one but the Father could show you that. He's also getting the rebuke of Jesus, get behind me, Satan, because he's trying to throw off a cross that was necessary for Jesus to fulfill the Father's plan for his life and for us. Peter is the guy that we can relate to so well. He is so self-assured so often, isn't he? So self-reliant. He says, when Jesus tells him what's coming, I will stand up for you. I'll fight for you to the death. 
for every one of us who are built like Peter, so self-assured of what God has given us, there will come a day that we blow it royally. And the crow will sound and we'll be devastated. Mary Magdalene couldn't get her arms around the fact that Jesus coming back to life was just too good to be true. Peter, he just can't give up control. He's still not willing to. It's almost as if at this point in Peter's life, it's like he's a man who is in the desert without any more water to drink, dying of thirst. And he makes his way to the oasis, and someone offers him what he needs to be sustained, and he rejects that offer because he's more interested in trying to do it himself. And you think of that, you think, who in the world would do such a thing? And then it dawns on you, I'm just like he is. Say, Oreo, you're investigating. You've seen so much. But then when you really see the one that we want to emulate, the one that this text has given us as the example, it is John himself, isn't it? The only one who sees the tomb correctly, who understands that it's the only way unto eternal life, is to receive the finished work of the Son and that He is raised from the dead and He's conquered death forever. When you consider the empty tomb this morning, I pray that you will see with a ra'o that you'll know, that you'll perceive, that you'll understand He is the Lord. Then when you look at that Jesus has been raised from the dead, a tomb that has been empty, your heart will be filled with his presence. And you'll believe. Is that what you need this Easter? Isn't that what we all need? Not too good to be true. He is the one who offers us life, living water, that when we drink from him, we never have to thirst again. But you have to receive it from him. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't rely upon your own ability. It will fall short. And if Peter had stayed in that condition, if we stay in that condition, we will die in our sin. We have to look unto Christ, understanding that he's the Lord. And believe. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Close your eyes. We're going to have a time of invitation. I just invite you to not stop with a glance. Don't be satisfied with a glaze, with a gaze. Just look unto Him. Receive the gospel. If you call upon the name of the Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. And right now, I just invite you, if you've never trusted in Christ the way that John did,
demonstrates. If you identify with either Mary or Peter or somewhere in between, right now, once you receive him, I'm going to pray. I just invite you to pray this in your heart and mean it. If you do, you'll be forever changed by it. You won't leave this place empty. You'll be filled. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I don't deserve you. If I got what I deserved, I'd spend forever separated in hell. But I believe that you died on the cross for me. That you were raised from the dead for me. And as best as I know how, I invite you in my heart. feel funny even saying invite. I just ask you to save me, God. This is all about you. And I pray that you will do a work in me that only you can do and make me into who you want me to be. I just trust you. I receive the gospel. It's the only way I can be saved. I just need you, Jesus. So, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I repent of my sin. I trust that you are the only way to eternal life. And I want to live out the rest of my days trusting you to make me into the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.